1: Great to have you with us, as always, here on the GM Shuffle, just a week away from Christmas time. Hope your Christmas shopping is going well. And first and foremost, we got hammered here in the Northeast, although I feel like maybe Mike was a little more unscathed compared to me. Listen, I don't mind shoveling snow, Mike. It reminds me of my childhood. My kids were having a blast outside playing in the snow. I shoveled for an hour on Wednesday night. I shoveled for an hour Thursday morning, so a little exercise fine. North Jersey, we got hit, like eight inches, whatever, a foot maybe in New York City. How was it for Ocean City, and were you Uh, no, no shoveling. I, 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 a, I don't shovel. But i B, B
2: yeah, I'm a son of a barber. I got to keep my hands soft and clear. You know, uh, no shovel. We got we got nothing but rain. It was kind of it was perfect. We got we got rain, so it, it with nothing. I mean, a lot of high wind, but rain, and it was uh, it worked out pretty well for us. But I could see North Jersey. My grandsons up in the Boston area, Lee, uh, Mikey and Dominic. They were uh, outside playing. They got feet foot you know, a lot of snow and, you know, and, and even like in Philly, which is interesting, that thin line between New Jersey, Ocean City and Philly, you know, it's only 60 miles away, but I think th- half of it got snow and the other half, we just got rain. So we, we kind of got through it, which was good. You know, it, we kind of, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to put any of the, um, of the, gra- of the grass feet out there. I'd have to go back into the, my uh, cabinet
1: and, you know, tied the money that was
2: back in there. I didn't have to do any of that. So it was all good. I
1: was going to say, that's a win all around. Speaking of wins, Justin Herbert does that again for the Chargers as they knock off the Raiders. 30-27 to is the final. It's amazing because you were saying this way back before the start of the season. that You liked Herbert more and concerns about Tua. And now I feel like everyone's saying it. If you were in, to to put it back in your dad's operation, if you were in a barbershop right now arguing you want Tua over Herbert, people would think you're insane. This is how good Herbert's been. NFL rookie Record, seven 300 yard game. He's got 27 touchdowns so far this season. Passing scores that ties Baker Mayfield for the most by rookie in NFL history. uh Vegas, for their part, listen, Carr, terrible injury. He seems scrambling to his right, immediately pulls at his left groin. He was done for the season. They've lost four or five games now. Vegas is seven and seven. They're done. They're not going to the playoffs. A uh, final score is 30 to 27 in overtime. Mariota was fine, Mike, but obviously was not able to do nearly enough to overcome the loss. But how about Herbert? Once again, strong performance. He threw for 314 and two touchdowns. I know it's the Raiders' defense. I know they just fired their defensive coordinator, Gunther, and Brian Rod Marinelli, but Herbert continues to surprise, maybe not surprise, continues to shine, definitely on a big stage
2: last night. No, I mean, some of the throws he made, I just sat there, Bill and I were watching on the couch at Millie, and I mean, I just looked at it and said like, holy shit, did he just see that throw he just made there? Like, that throw there? I mean, this is, they have a chance to compete with Kansas City because of this kid. Now they've got other issues and they can't compete with Kansas City under the current coaching staff structure, but of all the teams in the National Football League that are young with a young quarterback, this kid gives them tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, opportunity to uh, enhance the moment. And as they play in this incredible stadium in Los Angeles, if they get the right coach with this quarterback, I mean, that's all it's going to take. It's just going to take that. I mean, their roster is strange, but they somehow find players from schools that you never heard of that come in and play well. But for me... I mean, this is a team like last night. The, the Raiders are a fascinating team. I know they fired Paul Gunther, which is really kind of remarkable, AD. Gunther and Gruden were best friends. I mean, when when Gunther was the first guy he hired. And, you know, and, and Gruden has all the authority of the organization. I mean, that defense wasn't out there. You know, Gruden firing Gunther is really about Gruden saying, I don't like how you're teaching. I don't like how you're coaching. Because Gruden can't get mad at him for the players that are out there on the field. He picked them. (laughs) He picked them. Like, they're his players. Like, there's nothing that happens in that organization that he ain't doing, that he don't sign off on. So when he wanted Nick Kwiatkowski or he wanted, you know, Carl Nessib, all those guys, I mean, that's who he picked. So he fires Gunther for it has to be he felt like the scheme wasn't good enough or the coaching wasn't good enough but he can't fire him for the – because if he fires him for the players, then it, then he should fire himself as the GM, you know? I think it's going to be a hard, hard to challenge there. As And I've said this all along. I would rather have 20 hours of root canal than be the general manager of the Raiders and work for Gruden because he's all over the place when it comes
1: to personnel. That's a challenge, and that's a statement. Like I said, 20 hours of root canal, it's that bad. On a lighter note – Here's John Gruden. It was the weirdest thing. He was wearing an Oakland Raiders hat the first half, and then it changed to a Las Vegas Raiders hat. Listen to this.
2: It's unfortunate we couldn't find a way to win that game at the end. It's on me, and um, I will say I apologize for not having the right hat
1: on. Somebody played a pretty good trick on me, but uh, I'll answer any questions that I can Uh, Well, a little bit of a lighter note there, just an odd thing when it comes to a a costume change. But but to your point, Mike, a guy's got that much juice. He's got that big a contract. He's got that big a name. He's won a Super Bowl. He's obviously been around the league a long time, had success. To work for him, work with him, that's an agonizing position because you realize it's not a fair... Um, power structure, right? It's not; it's it's imbalanced. No matter what, you're cowtowing to his whims and his demands, which seem to be rather irrational. And, and he is very,
2: you know, you're not going to tell him. You know, he's not a good listener, so you're not going to be able to. I mean, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about coaching, and and I talked about him in the book about how you know he is, uh, uh, he's, you know, he's not a great listener. He kind of has his mind made up what he wants to do, and you're not going to talk him out of it. I mean, all Mike Mayock has is the power of persuasion. I mean essentially you know that's all he really has so you know if he can't persuade john to change his mind on a player personnel then you know he's got no chance and so you can carry the title of general manager i think that's the problem in the national football league a lot of people think you have the title i mean i had the title of general manager in cleveland you know the the president of the team in his in my contract he had the authority to make all the picks so that was written in the contract. I don't, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I was grateful for the title, but certainly, and I, I had a responsibility that I had to meet towards, and obviously, you know, in just one year, we didn't get something done, but the reality of it is, is, is you always work for somebody. You know, you, as Bob Dylan said, man, you got to serve somebody, and Mayox serving Gruden. And, you know, Gruden's won, you know, he's won 18 games in three years on this $100 million contract. And John, as the general manager, I think John works best when he's not the general manager. John needs enemies. John is the perfect TV series because when you write a screenplay, they always ask you, what's the rub? Who's the, who's the villain? John needs villains. You know, when John was in Philadelphia, the villains was the front office. They're fucking me, man. I got no players, man. I got no players. When he goes to Oakland, Al was fucking him. I got no players, making me play with James Jet, making me play with these guys, man. I got no players, right? I don't know what he was like. And, and oh, at Tampa, the villain was, I'm winning with Dungy's players. That probably killed him. So he always, now that he's in charge, who's the villain? Who's the villain? He, can't, he, can't, who becomes the villain? There's no villain. He, and, 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 and I say this respectfully towards John because he uses the villain to motivate himself. That's how he motivates himself because at the end of the day, John is a $100 million quality control offensive coordinator. I bet you if you walked in his office on Wednesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, his hands would be filled with white out and colors because he's drawing cards for the script on the offensive practice. This is what he does. He's yet to really move into the head coaching chair. And until he does that, this, this seven and nine,
1: eight and eight, that's the way it's just going to be. That's definitely not news that Raiders fans want to hear. I don't think Chargers fans want to hear the name Anthony Lynn either after this season. But Anthony, once again, coaching malpractice, as you put it. Chargers running the Wildcat at the start of the second half. Take a listen to this.
2: We were doing things to keep them off balance. You know, we were trying to hit the perimeter, we Was using different personnel groupings. You know, we do that every week. Uh, You know, we have direct snaps. We have whatever. But that's all those just to keep guys off balance. You know, it didn't work, obviously. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times that play does work. It's no different than a speed sweep. So.
1: Uh, thoughts on the running the wildcat and his explanation, Mike. I mean, look, you got to try different things to make
2: the, the players comfortable, but I think when you watch, I mean, the field goal kicker has killed the chargers all year. I mean, I don't know if Anthony's aware of it, but his kicker sucks, you know? And so when he tries a long field goal, you know, like he did in the third quarter and the kid missed it, I mean, you know, uh. You always wonder, like, why would he even try a field goal? You know, like you just sit there and think, why would he even try? You know, like Bagley just can't. For some reason, Bagley's just not good enough. I mean, he missed a 47-yarder in the midway through the fourth quarter, which gave the Raiders the ball back with a chance to uh, to really win the game or to win the game, and and they were fortunate enough that that Mariota threw the ball in the back, kind of an inaccurate pass. Jay Jones got tipped up in the air, and it's intercepted by Chris Harris. He almost scores on the play. So now the Chargers have the ball, 154 to go. In the game, they have the ball at the Raiders' 33-yard line, which right now sets up to be a 50-yard field goal. So they run it up the middle for three yards. The Raiders call their second timeout. Second and seven, they run it up the middle again. They get five yards. Raiders call timeout okay stops the clock now you know this ad this is one of my pet peeves there are places on the field where the quarterback cannot take a sack right there there are play, and in every coaches every quarterback coaches meeting room i did a i did a cameo the other day for a couple division 3 coaches and they, they asked me about quarterbacking play and i said get your kids to cut out where quarterbacks can't take sacks on the field they can't take them like, this is coaching 101 And so on third and two from the Las Vegas 25, Anthony calls kind of a a, a submarine flow pass boot, and Herbert gets sacked and loses eight yards. And Bagley goes out there to kick his 51-yard field goal. And guess what, AD? He misses. Of course, you know, he misses. And would he have missed if they didn't get sacked eight yards? Maybe. I don't know. But at that point, when you have the ball at the 25, you know you have a 32-yard field goal center the ball wherever the hell you want it. Yeah, you want to get the first down, great. But you know the Raiders are going to get the ball back maybe with 50 seconds left to go and no timeouts, right? So you got a chance. But of course they take the sack, 51-yard field goal wide. The Raiders come back, they try to they try to throw a couple throws down the field. They played outside their element on this drive and they got got it to fourth and one with 18 seconds to go. They sneak it and then they try to they try to they try the long field goal. And they have a bad snap. But then in overtime, which was, this is where the Raiders lost the game. The Raiders have the ball first and four at their own, at their own, at the, at the charger four-yard line. And they can win the game at that point. And unfortunately, they they run the ball twice to Jacobs. He doesn't get anything. Then they try to throw it. Nothing happens. And they got to settle for the field goal. And that's where they lose the game. And then within a matter of moments, it, it, they're down the field. Pass interference, big throw, guys wide ass open. They lose the game, score a touchdown.
1: I was about to say, that's just the sad story of the Bears right now for these teams this year. But that bottom line is this for the Chargers, they're not going to get any better with that coach. And for the Raiders right now, coaching upheaval when it comes to that defense, they're now, once again, a 500 team, and they are not going to be making the playoffs. No word yet, by the way, on how badly Carr was hurt, but you saw him immediately grab that groin. You knew he was not coming back for that game. All right, now let's get to uh, now is not the time to not say. Now's
0: not the time to not
1: say. That's right. We kick it off with Louis Riddick, the general manager starting the rounds, or future general manager candidate perhaps, starting the rounds of external interviews. Now, he is the current ESPN Monday Night Football analyst. He stated an interview for the Houston Texans GM job on Wednesday with the Detroit Lions on Friday. So, former pro safeties played 94 games over six seasons, then went into the front office. Pro scout with Washington in 01, director of pro personnel 05 to 07, was with the Eagles in 08, director of pro personnel from 2010 to 2013. Obviously been a broadcaster, as I said, with ESPN for a few years. I knew him a little bit at ESPN, nice guy, did a few... uh Few interviews with him here and there. And right now he's with Steve Levy and Brian Gracie in the booth. But it feels like Mike gaining traction right now. Like I don't want to say Riddick is the hot property, but clearly there's more than one team that's interested in him. He does have front office experience. He's now been a broadcaster for a little bit. What do you make of potentially those fits Houston or
2: Detroit? Well, I think that, you know, if you're Lewis, I mean, you're sitting on a pretty good gig, right? You know, and, and obviously the the, the opportunities are out there in the National Football League, and I think you have to really balance what job you want you know what do you really want to do do you want to uh, take a job that they're going to pair you with someone you know we're going to hire you in Detroit and you'll be involved in the process but we're going to pick the coach and you and the coach are going to split the duties or does he take a job where they say okay you're the general manager you go pick the coach you run the organization and when you have leverage and I think he does have some leverage because of the the television and because he's kind of interviewing every single day when you are on TV, he can decide what he wants to do and will somebody gives, give him the authority to run an organization I mean he's never really run a. he's been a pro director he's never really run an entire draft selected a player he's always been a mid-level employee within an organization not that there's anything wrong with that it's just what he is and so I think he has to decide what he wants you know will he you know people think well maybe he and the enemy are a partnership maybe they are you know people say he and Josh McDaniels are a partnership he doesn't I mean he's never been in the Patriots System, you know, there's been always talk that he and Josh would partner together. I, I, I doubt that would happen. He's never been in the Patriot system, nor would understand the Patriot grading system. I mean, he played for us in Cleveland uh, in '94, but you know, playing in Cleveland and being part of the the Belichickian system. Is uh, those are those are few and far between. So I I think obviously he's going to have his opportunity. Uh, there's four jobs that are open. I think it really comes down to what the owner wants to do with those jobs, how he wants to split them. For me, and I wrote this in the Athletic today. I I think the the perfect model is the model must be the coach. Let him pick the coach, and let the coach pick the guy that want that he wants to work with. So Pete Carroll hired gets hired in Seattle. He picks John Schneider. Uh, Andy Reid goes to Kansas City, he picks John Dorsey. And then what those guys are able to do, and I think this is really critical, you know, I, I think this is really important in the sense of how they do it. And I'm not sure this happens in in, Oak, in Las Vegas as much because John has never, Gruden's never really been a personnel trained guy. He's always kind of just so but my point, my point here is is Leonardo da Vinci has a great quote, nothing strengthens authority so much as silence. And what Andy Reid does in Kansas City and what Pete Carroll does in, in uh, Seattle, Belichick does this in New England, is they have all the power, but they don't tell everybody they have all the power. They don't make it known that they have all the power. So, you know, no one would know that John Snyder has to use the power of persuasion to get Pete Carroll to make picks and to sell him on DK Metcalf or Russell Wilson or whomever. You know, and John's very good at his job. I think John's one of the best in the league. But the point here is, is that you know, you have to set it up so that the coach allows the personnel guy to have the power to do his job, even though if he doesn't have the power in his contract, that's challenge. That's a hard thing to do. That's hard to duplicate. And then what happens is when you lose, when you lose and you're not tied at the hip philosophically and within that structure, then it really becomes a problem. You know, then all of a sudden, who do you start to blame? When you split the duties and you lose, the personnel guy blames the coach no matter how friendly they are, okay? But when you when the coach hires the personnel guy, like I've talked about with Gruden, how can he blame the personnel guy when he's responsible for the picks as
1: much as anybody? Yeah, when you start to play the blame game, it gets to be a tricky situation. There's no question about it. And the good news, like I said, back to Reddick is he's got more than one option out there. That brings us to actually the GM shuffle mailbag. This is from Jeremy. We can fire through this one. What attributes should the next GM and head coach have that Michael thinks the Lions should find on the next hires beyond who he thinks is the best fit there? Is it time to move on from Stafford? Wow. Or find a succession plan. Think of the 2020 draft. They could have gotten Herbert and or ransomed Tua. That's from Jeremy.
2: Well, I, obviously, you know, everybody's going gr- to uh, begrudge themselves for not picking Herbert based on that. I mean, look, the, the Chargers are sitting there saying they would have taken whoever left was left to them, Tua or Herbert. I mean, sometimes, you know, you land on third base, you think you hit a triple. You know, you're just fucking lucky, right? I mean, the Chargers got lucky. I mean, really, I mean, the set this, that you thought both players were the same to me. Means you got lucky because they were never, no players are ever the same. So the answer to the question is I think this I think the best guys in pro, that make the best general manager in pro football understand the coach and understands the pro game. Too often they hire guys who have a college background that don't understand pro football, they see players, not plays. So, if I'm the Lions, I would want to hire somebody who truly understands pro football from a macro level how to build an organization, how to build a personnel department, how to build a structure within that, and how to work that within the framework of the coach. And the coach tells us as long as the coach is willing to be the separate entity, that he's not relying on, oh, I got to check with my D line coach to see what he thinks. Oh, I better check with the DB coach. No. If the coach comes in and wants to be a true head coach, then then he and the GM work together. But it, like in Oakland, like in Las Vegas, I'm sure John asked Rich Pisacchi what he thinks of players. He asked what his receiver coach thinks. And so Mayock's just one of all these other guys. That's a hard thing to operate within. So that's what I would urge the, the Lions to do. I think the bigger issue with the Lions is Chris Spielman. You know, what is Chris Spielman's role? No one's going to think that Chris Spielman's just there to, oh, he's just there to help out he's the, he's going to talk to the president of the team every day so what happens if he says i don't really like the technique they're teaching on the field see these are all the prop when you start hiring guys that have comp that 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 talk to the owner or talk to the president, it just muddles the organization. I'm not saying not to hire Chris Spielman, but I think the GM, when he goes in there, he's going to have to manage Chris Spielman in a way to where he can understand it. I've listened to Chris do games. The way Chris sees the games and the way a general manager has to see the games, I think are vastly different. That will be a challenge for the next coach that goes in there. I'm not saying Chris is a bad guy at all. It's just by nature of the business, coaches are very, very paranoid about who's talking talking. And if you don't buy in completely to what they're doing, then you become disloyal and you're a traitor ultimately. And that's what causes the problem.
1: Yeah. To put it in terms that you and I appreciate, Spielman's like the consigliere. I mean, he's leaving Fox to join the alliance as a special assistant to owner Sheila Ford Hamp and team president Rod Wood. He's reporting to Wood and he's serving as an advisor once again to both him and Hamp while working both the business and football sides of the franchise. This is while A vacant GM and head coaching position would, for his part, explain it thusly. That was why it was so critical to get him involved early because I wouldn't want to bring him in after we've hired a general manager or after we've hired a coach and had them wonder what his role is. That will be very clear to them while we're interviewing the candidates, and he's part of the process of hiring them. So he's going to be invested in their success, and he's going to be available to them as a resource, however they choose to use him in the best possible way. So imagine you're Lewis Riddick. Imagine uh, you're Tom Dimitroff, by the way. Dimitroff, the former Atlanta Falcons GM, he's going to interview with the Lions. Uh, he's led Atlanta from 08 till his dismissal earlier this year. Just imagine being in that conversation. They're asking Tom Dimitroff, you know, what do you think of the roster? How would you improve with this and that? Hey, uh, you okay with Chris Spielman being here? Okay, sure, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. what's his role exactly? Well, he's just gonna be giving me advice. You okay with that? Yeah, sure. Like it sounds like you don't have a choice at this point if you're the GM coming in. Right. And and David Chase gave us gave NFL
2: owners the greatest advice of how to build an organization of anybody. When Jimmy Altieri's sitting there and Larry Boy and Tony, they're having lobster. They got their bibs on. They're sitting there at the table. Uh, Ray's there. And you know Tony says to Ray, why don't you run this thing? And, and Larry Boy and Ray says, I, you know, I got a kid with MS. I can't. I'm trying to phase myself. You're the golden boy. You were always pegged. And then Jimmy Altieri basically gives every NFL owner the advice they need. He says, look, This thing of ours ain't the Dave Clark Five. It's a paramilitary organization that starts from the top down. And that's the NFL. It ain't the Dave Clark Five. And we keep trying to make this the Dave Clark Five. You know, we'll bring Chris Spielman in. He'll be a background singer. We'll bring this guy in. He'll be the bass player. It, you know, no, no. It's a fucking paramilitary organization. As, as Jimmy Altieri, the great the great coaching builder of all time, once said, you build this thing from the top down. It's how the, they built the, the the mafia. That's how they built the, the, the Costa Nostra. It's from the top. They, they, everybody has a role they play, and that's it. And if you violate your role, you're dead. And unfortunately, we keep, trying to, we keep trying to build the Dave Clark Five.
1: Yeah, the Dave Clark Five, often called the DC Five, by the way, English rock and roll band formed in Tottenham back in 57. They had their first UK, UK top 10 single, Glad All Over. That actually knocked the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand off the top of the UK singles chart. Also, said, because, catch us if you can. I just love the fact, you're right, Jimmy Altieri used that as a reference. Like he didn't say, you know, the Temptations or, you know, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. No, no, the Dave Clark Five, which is perfect. All right, when we come back, Drew Brees has been cleared from IR. We finally have a matchup of two good teams with the Chiefs and Saints, Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. They need a win against the Eagles, who look resurgent, plus Russell Wilson against that tough Washington defensive line. All that more coming up next.
0: All right. Anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase "hit it long and hit it straight." Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So. driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness that's just ridiculously high so what you got to do go check out the pxG black ops driver you'll be as impressed with it as I am learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com GM shuffle and use code GM shuffle at checkout that's pxg.com GM shuffle code GMshuffle for free shipping on all equipment pxg.com slash GMshuffle code GM shuffle
1: Before we get into some games here, check the most up-to-date betting lines by using the DraftKings Sportsbook app. And once again, Mike will give you his official picks uh, Sunday morning via Twitter, at MLombardi NFL. You can also follow him on Instagram, MLombardi NFL And myself, Adnan S. Furk, along with the GM Shuffle, at the GM Shuffle on IG. Overall, your record now, Mike, 27, 28, and 2 uh, for this season, and overall 73, 50, and 4. So climbing back after a tough start. Yeah, getting back. I mean, I'm not quite as good as uh, as as my man, Vegas Dave.
2: I love that Aaron Rodgers called Vegas Dave out on, on, on the Pat McAfee show. I freaking love it. You know, what a fraud. The guy's talking about how he wins all these games. I mean, like, you know, the other night, we, you know, I had Cleveland. And the three points, uh, three and a half against the the Ravens, it was between three and three and a half, whatever it was. And you lose that game on that safety at the end of the game and you're like, okay, that's a bad beat. But you handicapped the game correctly, right? Like you did the game exactly how you wanted to do the game. So you can't get mad at that. Like that's just part of it. So when some slappy comes on and says, oh, I'm batting 98%, I mean, seriously, shut up. Like just shut up. And the fact that Aaron Rodgers called him out on it was even better.
1: (laughs) More reason to vote for Aaron Rodgers for MVP this season. Let's kick it off with some actual games. The only matchup this weekend of teams over 500 going head-to-head features the Kansas City Chiefs at 12-1, and and the New Orleans Saints at 10-2. and two. Good news is, by the way, we get football on Saturday. Doubleheader on, on Saturday, so lots of football Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. But for this matchup specifically, the big topic was Michael Drew Brees come back, rib injury. They designated him to return from injured reserve. Sean Payton said his return was depending on how the week goes. There's a process last week with the trainers. He had one throwing day, then yesterday the same way. Depends on if not, he's feeling good, feeling strong, etc. Going to be a challenge. him Hill, obviously his first start was good. Uh, last week, lost against the Eagles. Seemed a little bit more limited. Listen, it's a challenge for any defense. The Saints have the number one defense in football, yet somehow... After 55 straight games of not allowing a 100-yard rusher, they gave up two of them, Miles Sanders and Jalen Hurts, and now they have to deal with Patrick Mahomes. Your thoughts on KC at New Orleans? Well, I mean, look, New Orleans can rush the passer. They they can do that. I mean, this is going to
2: be a challenging game because New Orleans has got to rush the passer correctly. They've got to be able to take three players to take two out of the game, right? This is the key to playing the Chiefs. You need three to play two. You've got a double hill on every single play, high-low, and you've got to have somebody who can match up on Kelsey, and then when it's third down, you've got to be able to double Kelsey, too, and take him out. So then you need four on, two, and you've got to hold up on the other players. Hard, hard, hard to do. But what your goal is to keep the game in the 20s. Your goal is to do that, play great red zone defense, keep them in, and and if the Saints can do that, they'll be in it. Now, they've got to be able to score points. Can Taysom Hill run the football, throw the football effectively against them? I'm sure Sean Payton will do a great job against Steve Spagnuolo. My numbers say this should be a one point, one point 8-7 game, you know, and the line is three with the Chiefs, so it's kind of like a little too close for me to call based on the wiggle room of the game, so I, I, I'm going to pass on that, but my, I would have to consider New Orleans if I did anything here, but to me, I think New Orleans can beat them. Do I think they can beat them seven out of 10 times? No. Do I think they could beat them two out of 10 times? Yes, and you just got to hope this is the two. Whether Breeze plays or not, I think that they're going to have to control the ball 36 to 37 minutes and really play great red zone defense.
1: Yeah, put the ball in the hands of the guy you love and Alvin Kamara and allow him to be the focal point of that offense, whether or not Breeze or Hill is in. Next game... The Pats are at six and seven. They're taking on the Dolphins at eight and five. We're still waiting for two a time. And now with the Ravens, after that huge win against the Browns, the Ravens schedule is much easier. I feel like they have the inside track rather than Miami to make the playoffs. And the Dolphins, despite what's been a good defense, good coaching by Flores, they're not going to be able to get it done. What do you think, though, New England? you talked to this before, Mike. They always have issues traveling to Miami. And normally that's an issue, I think, earlier in the season you've said. But Pats at Miami. What do you think?
2: Well, you know, I think Zaleski, the tight end from Penn State, he's not going to play. He's got the shoulder. I don't know where Parker is. So we got to check on that Sunday morning, you know. And without those two players, they love to throw the football in the middle of the field. Tua loves to throw the ball in the middle of the field. And so I know Belichick will take the middle of the field away from Tua. He'll force him to play quarterback from behind the center and try to take advantage of the weakness in their offensive line. I think this is a defensive struggle, AD. I would play the under here. In this game, if anybody wants to play an under this week, I think the under is viable. It's 41 and a half. My line for this game when it opened up was 2.93. The line's 2.5. So that means there's 1.03 of wiggle room, which tells me not to play it. I favor Miami in the game because I don't know how New England scores. Like New England's receivers are going to struggle to get away from the Miami corners and they're going to struggle to run the football effectively. I think it's a really hard game for New England. I don't like that Brad Allen's referee in the game either. I've t- to me after this season of of watching all these games, when Brad Allen, when I look on my sheet and Brad Allen's doing the game, I pass.
1: All right, fair enough. Next up the Seattle Seahawks at 9 and 4 taking on the Washington football team at 6 and 7. Now Washington has won four straight games. I can't believe I'm saying this, but they'd like to have Alex Smith back. Yes, the guy with 17 surgeries because Dwayne Haskins isn't going to be able to lead them to victory, but their defense is so strong. They keep them in games, and that's what they've been winning. Can they do it again? This is a big test here for Russell Wilson, right? No doubt. I mean, Russell's got to prove he can, you know. The
2: one thing about the Washington football team, and I wrote this this week in The Athletic, Nick Saban had a great quote where he said, look, offenses are always ahead of defenses because the offense can run the read option. So they can basically slow down the defense with the read option. They force the defense to play, you know, a, a cover one. They force the defense to play in middle of the field close. For football fans out there, there's really only two coverages in all of football, right? So there's the middle of the field open, which means there's no free safety in the middle of the field. Okay, so when the middle of the field is closed, meaning it's there's a free safety there, it's either cover one, cover three, it's some form of zone, zone man concepts. Okay, if it's open, that means it's cover two, meaning that there's it could be two man, two funnel, whatever it is. Okay, but that's essentially. But to run the read option, you almost have to always have the middle of the field closed because you're trying to defend this thing. And so it gives the offense an advantage and they can run slants and all yada, yada, yada. And I think this is the first quarterback Washington's really had a face in the last month that can kind of take advantage of get the ball out quick, kind of neutralize their ability to rush the passer and create havoc. And the way their offense has been so bad, you know, maybe they'll be able to run the football today on Sunday against against uh, Seattle's defense. That's going to be the key to the game. Their, wa- their offense has to come to play. My line on this game was five and a half points. The line, excuse me, my line on this game was 2.12 points favor of Seattle. The line's five and a half. If I play it, I got to play Washington. Be nervous as hell to play Washington because they scare me on offense, but they've been good in covering by that defense. I think this is a hard, hard game for Washington though.
1: Yeah, it's tough, like I said, when you look at it from that perspective because of the fact that if Seattle wins, even then, you don't see it really being a blowout. Eagles and Cardinals, another tough game to handicap. So Philadelphia pulls off a shocking upset against the number one defense in New Orleans. Hurts played well Defense was inspired. They finally got an interception, by the way. The Eagles defense, they never get any turnovers. They finally got a pick. D-line obviously was strong, and Miles Sanders their best offensive player. Cardinals have come back down to earth a little bit after thinking maybe they could challenge for the division crown. And now this is a key game for Arizona because they do not want the Bears or Vikings, who are just one game behind, to all of a sudden creep back closer in that playoff race. Arizona seven and six, Philly at four, eight, one. If Philly wins out, they would be seven, eight, and one. Theoretically, they could win the division. What happens for Jalen Hurts? There was so much hype, Mike, so much success after a nice win. What happens now for Hurts in week two? Well, I mean, you would think that d- d- uh, Vance
2: Joseph kind of like knows they're going to come out and run the the version of the single wing, the read option, and he's going to run it. I mean, he's going to throw it, you know, and last week when you watched him, I mean, he he really didn't uh, throw the ball over, uh, you know, he didn't really throw it over, over uh 10 yards. I mean, I think he only had four throws that went at over 10 yards in the whole game. Uh, six of his seven passes traveled less than three yards. So he's, it's going to be kind of a control passing game uh, that he can execute and he's going to run it. The question is, will the mayor, uh, Kyler Murray, will he be able to run the ball against the Eagle defense, which has played well? You know, the Eagles defense has played well. And can they exploit the the secondary? And can this offensive line protect? I kind of don't trust it. The line has really come back towards Philadelphia. The line opened up at six and a half. Now today on Friday afternoon, it's kind of, it's closed at, at, right now it's at six. So a lot of people seem like are betting the Eagles. I think it's in my numbers, when I did the power rankings this week, I had this as a 6.62 game, which means that my line is 1.2 wiggle room. I doubt if I would recommend it. It's a little too close. I think Philly wins this game. I just think Arizona offensively hasn't played well. And I think that's a concern. So I, I, my eye level says Philly wins. Arizona's numbers says, you know, if, if the line keeps going and you're going to get you – know and the line's at six, you might have to take them. So – I like Philly in this game.
1: I'm not going to touch it. All right. Too close for comfort. Last one. We'll squeeze in there just because it's a Saturday game. It's fun to get some Saturday football back, as always happens, late in the regular season. The Buffalo Bills at 10-3, and 3, a big win against the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're trying to lock down the AFC East, and they take on the Broncos at 5-8. and 8. Do you like the Bills on the road at Mile High?
2: You know, once again, you know, and and I'm not trying to cop out here, but the line opened six and a half at 43 and a half is the number. My number came out at 6.25. So once again, that's eliminated. I I think, you know, Denver's one of those teams that play much better at home. I think that they are obviously a team that, that, can run the football effectively with Gordon and Lindsey. Locke just scares the shit out of you. But when he can throw the ball like he did against Carolina, the wide-ass open receivers, he actually looks good. Fascinating this game here is the line had opened at six. It stayed at six. There's been 82% of the money has come in on the Bills, only 18% on Denver. And yet the line hasn't moved at all. You know, the line hasn't moved. I think Buffalo, this is a, another trip out west. They were in Arizona two weeks ago to play the 49ers. Now they're in Denver. I think this is a hard. If I leaned anywhere, I think I would take Denver in the points, figuring it will be a closer game. I think Buffalo wins. I think it would be a closer game. I doubt if I'll play it because it's too close for me. The other one, Carolina Green Bay, I know we don't have that on the, on the on our script, but that one to me is a little misleading in the sense that I had that one as I think it's a 5.25 game. That line's at eight. So I would lean towards taking Carolina here, assuming Carolina's healthy for the game. They're supposed to get DJ Moore back. Green Bay's one of those teams that they can score, but they also give up points. I think Joe Brady will do a good job of moving the football and running the ball on Green Bay. I think they'll take that kind of Carolina game plan with them to Lambeau and try to break break all stops to win this game, I think Carolina has a chance to, I'm not saying they can win, but I think they'll keep it as a close game.
1: Uh, One thought there in the Broncos, Vic Fangio's did say that uh, Von Miller started running last week, isn't expected to play in the game against the Bills. Coming up, we'll open up the GM stuff Mailbag. Again, culture problems in Cincinnati, plus one of our favorites from the Sopranos. That's right. Gloria Trillo lives. We'll discuss next.
0: 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
1: GM Shuffle mailbag. As always, you can hit us up. The GM Shuffle at gmail.com from John. Huge fan of the show in Beverly Hills. I love it. What is Zach Taylor's deal? Their defense isn't good. They can't protect any quarterbacks. They can't score. They get into fights in the field. And then you read all about their culture problems. Can the league office step in and say to ownership, either spend money and fix this or send Joe Burrow to a team that will? That's an angry Bengals fan from Beverly Hills. I mean, look, you're not going to get Mike Brown to change his mind, right? There's just
2: no way. Zach Taylor, I think Zach Taylor is, you know, Zach Taylor's proven over two years. He's won four games. He he shouldn't have this job. He's not ready for it. It's just not fair to Zach Taylor. I mean, it's really not fair to him to give him this much responsibility and have a multi-billion dollar franchise at his disposal. But, you know, Mike Brown, the owners, they're going to make money whether they win or lose. This is going to be a true test for Mike Brown because he hired the wrong guy. And I think it's a great job. I think marker for Mike Brown would be really good because Mike Brown understands football and he understands patience. But there's one thing about being patient. The other thing about being lost, right? You know, you know, the old saying, I'm lost, but making great time. Well, the Bengals are lost and they're not making great time. You know, and so they gotta do something to change what they're doing. And and you just hope that they can see through this. To me, Zach Taylor was a was a hire based on and it's everything what's wrong. Sean Payton said this in a podcast the other day. It's everything what's wrong with the NFL and the hiring process. People are doing the interviewings that have no idea what to ask, zero idea what to ask in the interview. And Mike Brown didn't do, you know, it was Katie Blackburn, Katie Brown Blackburn and her husband. They did it. They fell in love with Zach Taylor. Four wins
1: later, this is where they are. And where they are is at least they got Joe Burrow. Unfortunately, right now, though, he's hurt. Our little pop culture segment here to end things up. How about our girl, Gloria? Annabella Shiora appearance on Talking Sopranos, uh, the excellent podcast of Michael Imperioli and Stephen Sharippa. Uh, talking about Amor Fu, and uh, that obviously incredible episode. Specifically, which you and I both mentioned when we talked about our favorite episodes all time, The Sopranos. But just the way she got into character, Mike. She had her own backstory for Gloria, so that she'd been abused, and that's why she was, you know, in an abusive relationship, attracted to dangerous guys. They talked about who slashed her tires, whether or not it was her, or somebody else. Uh, amazing conversation because it was such a memorable character. I mean, even you think about you know, when James Gandolfini was choking her, and she said, you know, at one point, James was like, "Hey, do you want to just, you want to just." Call it a day. We'll do this next week. Like in that moment, it was so intense and uh, what I thought was really interesting is this in the conversation they said David Chase reached out to her afterwards and said you know, he wanted to have her back but she was in Italy this is like you know pre-cell phones and stuff and he said well now it's too late Gloria could have been on season 4 of The Sopranos and the one thing she kept arguing with David Chase about was okay because he said well it's too late now I can't bring you back okay fine he said she's going to kill herself and she said well she should kill herself with a gun women don't kill themselves with guns they do it with pills and he said well women don't hang themselves either and again Annabelle Shore is no longer on the Show is she felt very passionate about that character and the way she should end her life. Very interesting conversation. I thought it was
2: fascinating and about how she really developed the character and how she thought so deeply about the character and how everything she did from what she wore to what she did, behaved, and when she came back from Morocco, what she felt like, and kind of how she was always questioning uh, authority and wanted to really, and how unhappy she was. And when she tried to open up to Tony in the hotel room and and you know that there and he could give a shit. He's smoking a cigar he could give a shit you know and it just shows you that they really ended up having nothing in common other than they were attracted to a marfu you know i thought she was great it was really one of the best that i've listened to a lot of them because i love that they go over the script and they kind of tell you little details of the script and they give their opinion i mean uh Bobby Bacala Steve I mean he was I mean he goes into a whole conversation about Robert De Niro in there and how much he hates De Niro he kills De Niro in there and he and Michael go back and forth on it and they kind of discuss it, it, it it's it's a great listen but if there's certain episodes that you love of The Sopranos, you know it was a two-hour episode, so it takes some time, and it, it's nice that they're on YouTube, so you could sit in your office and you can watch them both. And I was working on my numbers, and I'm listening to this, and I got, you know, the first half of it. I had uh, Annabella on there, and she's talking about how she played the role and what she did. It was really, really good, and the writing—it just tells you the writing. I didn't realize. I don't know why I didn't realize, but Frank Frank my, my, my buddy Frank Frenzuli, he wrote it. I mean, he did the teleplay on it. And you could now that I now that it jarred my memory, some of those lines are just so good in there. And Frank is to me truly a wordsmith. He's one of the great, great writers in terms of of how he fit his personality into The Sopranos. It really was tremendous.
1: Yeah, I, I, I disagree with one of the things the guys said. They were talking about how, well, the scene that you and I love when Patsy goes to stare, scare Gloria and he says, and you, know, you ever see Tony again, you know, I'm going to kill you, basically. And the last face you're going to see is mine, and it's not going to be cinematic. And the one thing Steve Shripper was saying is, I would have thought that... You know, Tony should have sent someone else to do it. He goes, if he'd sent Chrissy, if he'd sent Polly or Silvio, because goes, that would have really scared her. Because could you imagine, Polly, like he would have terrified her. But I actually thought it would have made more sense that he sent Patsy, because Patsy looks like a routine, normal guy until he gets in the car for the test drive and then threatens her. I thought, if you see Polly coming up on you, go, okay, this is bad news. This guy clearly is going to kill me. Exactly.
2: And I thought the same thing, too. I think Tony wanted to scare her. I think he would have been afraid to send Polly, because Polly might have killed her anyway. You know, and and he knows that Christopher has a temper. He sent somebody in a controlled fashion who wasn't going to go outside the boundaries. I mean, remember, these two guys. Now, think about this. These two clowns, you know, I love that Steve and Michael are making fun of Jackie. Meanwhile, you know, Michael's down there in the Pine Barrens acting like a complete idiot, you know, his character, right? So just think about what they're thinking about. I mean, Michael and and Pauly were sent to pick up money from the Russian. A simple job. And they turned it into this whole convoluted thing that fortunately for us became the Pine Barons. But if he would have sent either one of those, Tony could have been duplicating another one of those things, that, another mess he had to clean up that he don't want to clean it up. By sending Patsy, he kind of gets to deliver his message in a way to where he knows that's where it's going to end. Get the message
1: across. Last thought here. We'll just do a quick one. Scott from New York. Another GM Shuffle mailbag question. Were you guys on the Sopranos from the first airing? I remember it was on Sunday nights. Michael was probably pretty busy on Sunday. So maybe he had to catch it on another night. Just interested to know when you guys first caught on to it, how your fandom evolved from there. I did not see the first season. I blame being in Canada where we did not have HBO, but I read uh, obviously a lot of magazines and pop culture. I mean, listen, you could not avoid the fact when The Sopranos came, it was a huge watershed moment. Everybody who was anybody was saying, Have you seen the show? Have you seen the show? It's amazing. So I was able to catch up uh, prior to season two, but I was not in it from the jump. You, Mike? Well, yeah. You know, my brother in law, Tom, he, he kept telling me to watch it. He said,
2: It was great. You'll love it. And then. And then one, I was up at the Napa Valley Marriott work. I was working for the Raiders. I was in my hotel room because that's where our offices were. And, I, and we had HBO, the hotel at HBO. And I just was flipping the channels for background noise. And I caught, it was season two. And it was the episode where Furio goes into the massage parlor to beat the shit out of the guy and his Ugh. wife. You yes. know? It was that episode. And I'm like, holy shit, this is really good. You know, and then I told Millie, and then that's when I went back. And then I started, then I watched season one and I watched season two. And then then I started watching it from then on. But I got addicted that it was like it was so compelling that it was on his background, but yet my mind just focused on it completely. I'm like, holy shit, this is really good.
1: And what a great hire by Tony. I mean, the fact he had the wherewithal to recognize, I could use Furio on my side. And that was Furio's introduction to like, okay, this is what we got now with our crew. That guy's not messing around. We're not messing around either. Thanks so much for checking us out here on the GM Shuffle. Uh, we'll be back with two episodes next week, Monday, as always, recapping the action. And then Wednesday, getting you set uh, before Christmas Eve for more football from next weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Once again, check out Mike's picks, Lombardi NFL on his Twitter Sunday morning.